there. Uh, I'm going to be reading from it, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And once you arrive there, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Word says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives life to all, a light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. You guys are doing okay today. Yeah, y'all are, y'all are entirely, entirely too kind. Um, my name is Corey. I'm also one of the pastors here at Providence, and uh, it's a good day. Man, I'm glad to be back. Uh, Got the uh, emotional stability of a wet piece of toilet paper right now. Those of you who have who've had the opportunity to preach, and it's something I've done, you know, for the bulk of time we've been involved here. It's almost like I've, I've said before. It feels like not so much something you do, but something that happens to you. <laughs> Unless you get out of here and you're like, man, I don't know what happened. You know, you just experience the Lord in a way that um, you know you don't any way else. So. Having been out of the pulpit since April, it is really nice to be back. We had the opportunity to kind of transition through some life changes, good things, not bad things that were happening, that were taking away time and ability, and there was a moment when I thought, hey, this is probably just not going to happen anymore because I don't have the time. Uh, so to have worked that out and seen the Lord kind of restore that and give that back to me is a big deal. So thank you guys for your encouragement, for your prayers during that time. Um, so I'm glad to be back. This is a good thing, and I'm glad to be with you here um, let me just pray. Let me pray for me and pray for us before we get going this morning, if you guys don't mind. Uh, Father, we love you. God, we're so thankful just to be gathered here with you this morning. God, to have the opportunity to open your word, to hear directly from you, God, through, uh, through feeble means, God, but we know that, that you, are, you are powerful enough to make it work. Father, I pray this morning as we, as we dig into your scriptures, as we look at the words of Jesus, Father, that we might be transformed. We might be made new, God, that those that came in dead might leave alive. Those of us who came in alive might leave encouraged and, and changed because of your words, God, and reminded that you are who you are so we don't have to be anything other than what you've made us. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so as Court said, we are continuing through a sermon series entitled Kingdom and King, which we began at the beginning of the year. This is the third uh, sermon in that series, and we're taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount. So the words of Jesus that he gives his disciples, it says early on that, that he goes up to a mountain, and he brings his disciples up, and he begins to teach them. So this is Jesus teaching directly to his disciples, but the thing that I want us to understand this morning is that even though he's speaking these words directly to him, these things are also implicitly meant for the church. Right, for the New Testament church that would come after, that would, that would be raised up through the, the good work of the disciples, through the, through the work of Jesus. So last week, Court walked us through the Beatitudes. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I'd love to recap some of it, but I can't. I don't have time. So if you'll go back to the podcast and listen, it folds nicely into what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, there are three verses at the end of that passage of Scripture that mean everything in the world to everything that we're going to talk about moving forward. So I'm going to start there in Matthew chapter 5. 
and look at verses 10 through 12. Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So one of the most important things that I've learned over the years about the scripture is not just studying it in a vacuum, a couple of verses and looking at that, but looking at it in the context of the whole narrative. And understanding what it is that Jesus is saying when he tells us, as Court just read, that he tells the disciples that they are to be the salt of the earth, that they are the light of the world, understanding the context in which it was that he was saying that. Now understand what I'm saying. We've also heard over the years people twist that, uh, that idea of context and make it um, a reason to change what Jesus was saying. Well, Jesus didn't really mean this. You've got to understand the cultural context of the day and then apply it to the cultural context of now, and it changes the words of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying read it within the context of the narrative, and we'll look a little more at that as we go through these verses this morning. So it is in the context of telling the disciples that they are to be blessed when they're persecuted, criticized, spoken bad about, and even hated for the sake of Christ, that Jesus then turns and gives them the charge that we see in verses 13 through 16. So let's look at that starting with the first part of verse 13. Jesus tells them, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, in 2019, particularly at the beginning of the year, when the vast majority of us, including myself, are doing the new year, new you thing, right? Like we're dieting, we're cutting back on, for me, it's carbs, which is very, you know, I love bread. That's a hard thing to do, but I'm, I was going to say I'm standing strong in the first couple of weeks of 19, but that would be a lie, and I will not lie to you. Um, just got back from men's retreat and ate everything I could get my hands on while I was there. But uh, salt is often, these days, it's almost like a dirty word. We're constantly being told our salt intake should be minimal. I used to work, before I got the new assignment at my job, I was working in an office in Friendswood. And there's a lady that works there. God bless her. She's the recycling queen. She's also the health queen. So she would go into our kitchen, which we had break room, and take all of the things that we loved and remove them and replace them with things that were supposed to be healthier options. And when I first got over there working, I brought my lunch one day because I was New Year, New Year, you know. And I sit down with my lunch, and I go to get salt to put on my food because I like salt. And I didn't find salt. I found a salt substitute. To which I said, what is a salt substitute? This is ridiculous. I put it on my food, and it was okay. But we're constantly being told salt intake should be minimal to the point that we tried to replace those, the salt, with other things in our diet. In the time Jesus was speaking these words, though, the understanding was that salt was the necessity of life. Um, the word that, that we use for salary is derived from a Latin word that translates to mean salt money. And this would refer to money given to Roman soldiers as an allotment to go out and purchase salt. Like It was so important in their culture that they received an allotment simply for the purchase of salt. It was essential to their way of life. Uh, but because of that, it was also incredibly expensive. Therefore, you had to, had to receive your salary or your salt money in order to go out and purchase it. Salt had many uses in the culture. It was a, a disinfectant. It was used as wound care. It was used as currency. You see oftentimes throughout Scripture that's used in ceremonial offerings. There are other references to salt throughout the Bible that begin to, you begin to build this picture of how important that was to them. Um, and remember, these were days before refrigeration, so the primary use of salt was as a preservative for food. So they didn't have a refrigerator where they could meal prep for the week and throw their food in there or in the freezer and keep it good. They had to figure out a way to preserve this food, and salt was the way that they did it. 
Have you ever had the power go? I was just talking to John Fernie. He was telling me the power was out at his house last night. And uh, if you've ever experienced the power going out, maybe you're out of town, maybe you don't know it, maybe a kid unplugs a refrigerator in the garage that's full of meat, and you come home to what? You open it up and it's rancid. It's disgusting. It's full of food that you cannot eat. It's rotted. But more important, it's incredibly expensive. And you look at that and go, man, that was $600 worth of groceries. And I have to throw in the garbage can. That is a, that's a devastating thing. So this would be the reality of the people at this time if salt was not there to be used as a preservative to keep their food, to keep it good. It was a very big deal for them. So they'd take their meat, they'd rub it with salt, they'd hang that meat in the sun for like four or five days is what I read, and the salt would draw out moisture, it would draw out bacterial, it would draw out harmful microbial organisms, and, and it also made it hard for fungus to grow on the meat, therefore elongating the life, elongating the usage of it, and allowing them to eat it into the future. So salt was very important as a preservative for, for a very important thing for them, which was food. And it had a secondary and almost incidental benefit because it would give the meat flavor. So you would use the salt to preserve the meat, you would rub it into the meat, you'd put it on the meat, and then when you ate the meat, you realize, man, salt is good to eat. Like it makes the meat better. We have this, 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 this day and age, our salt is used almost exclusively for taste. I don't know of anyone using salt for wound care anymore. You know, maybe, I don't know, but, but we probably shouldn't be because that burns and we have other things that we can use. So we're using salt almost exclusively for taste. So much so that we have created fancy salt specifically for this purpose. You guys have Tony Sashries in your, in your cabinet? Yeah, that's <laughs> text joy. I got one in my house called Slap Your Mama, whatever that is. <laughs> It's good stuff. I mean, I last, last week, like I told you, new year, new use. So I'm meal prepping up some, some meat, some stuff that doesn't have carbs in it for the week at work. And I, I found this recipe online for uh, bacon-wrapped chicken thighs, right, which sounds, man, I don't know if that's any good. They're very good. I found H-E-B sells a boneless, skinless chicken thigh. So I took these, and I seasoned them up real good with had some Slap Your Mama and some other stuff on there wrapped them in bacon and put them on the grill and I have three children one of which Jonah the oldest hates to eat meat he hates it he could live off Doritos and ketchup and he would never never eat meat so I, I took this meat and I cut I said Jonah you love bacon you're gonna like this the dad worked really hard on it and I cut it into small pieces and I gave it to him and he ate about three pieces he looked he calls my dad pops and he looked back at me and he said you know dad he said if pops were here and he ate this meat you know what he would say and I'm thinking what's he about I know my dad what's he about to say and he goes, Pops would eat this meat, and he would say, ooh-wee. <laughs> I was like, victory, right? We have seasoned this. I guess that is a good thing, right? So the disciples at this time, they're hearing Jesus telling them they are the salt of the earth, and they're recognizing that he's telling them that they are there to preserve the earth. But by preserving the earth, they would also change the taste of the lives that those they influence. Not only because of the disciples. So the disciples are not the ones doing this, but they're carrying the message of the gospel of Jesus. And that is what is not only preserving those around them, but it is seasoning and changing the taste of their life. The gospel preserves. Right? The gospel seasons. The gospel takes everyday mundane and, hey, sometimes hard lives. And despite those, cir despite those circumstances, often still gives us a reason to say, ooh-wee. Right? Isn't that true? Regardless of what it is going on in our lives, if we look and we lock in and we understand what Christ has done for us in our current circumstances, does that not elicit that response from the believer? I pray that you've experienced Christ in that way, that that is what, that is what comes from us. The gospel protects us from evil. 
The gospel defends the powerless. The gospel binds up the wounds of the afflicted. The gospel drives out that which threatens to destroy those whom God loves. And this is why Jesus took such care to call the disciples the salt of the earth because it is they who would carry this gospel into the earth, the gospel which would preserve, right? The gospel which would save, the gospel which would transform lives. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on, second part of verse 13, and he says this. He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, if the gospel of salvation, of salvation is the salt that disciples carry that will preserve the earth, in this second statement of verse 13 is Jesus now saying that this salvation is something that can be lost. Um, I want to be very clear with that because I read a lot of that online. I want to be clear and, and tell you that's not what he's saying at all. Understand something. True salt can only be salt. Sodium chloride is a very stable compound. It does not change. You can add minerals to it, and it will change the chemical composition, but at that point it is no longer considered salt. And what Jesus is saying would no longer be good for its preservative purpose, so it should be thrown out and trampled. It's no longer it's no longer accomplishing its chosen purpose. Therefore, it is no good for anything at that point. So Jesus' point is not that the disciples should be worried about the loss of their salvation, but should be aware that the Christ follower is still vulnerable to sin and should be on guard against the schemes of the enemy at all times. I hope we haven't missed that. I hope there's not this point where we go, man, this is great. The gospel has impacted me. I'm changed. And now I'm no longer vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy because that's not true. Because here's what we know. There is an opposition, and the Bible tells us he wants to destroy you. He wants to kill you. He wants to rob the joy from your life, the joy that we have that only comes from Christ. But we must be clear that sin is still capable. It still has the ability to work its way in and to do the work of the enemy in our lives. And we know this because we have times where we lose our way. We have times that the world's influence causes us to drift off course. And it's in these times that we must truly remember the preservative nature of the gospel for the believer. This is the message that we're carrying into the world. This is why Jesus would call the disciples the salt of the earth. We are carrying this message of preservation. And just because things begin to turn and go south, just because things aren't as good as you think they ought to be, does not mean that the gospel has passed you by and Christ has released his grip on you. It means that you are right where he is chosen to place you in that moment for your good and for his glory <laughs> let's live in that truth and that's a hard truth <laughs> okay I'm not saying this as someone who's very good at this I'm actually very bad at this <laughs> I'm very bad I'm a terrible sufferer my wife tells me sometimes Corey you're a front runner and I am I'm good at leading I'm really bad at bringing up the end but I'm working I'm working to get better man we can do this with confidence because we know our God is faithful to forgive us. When the Bible calls believers new creations, that is not a conditional statement. We are new from the moment he grips our life. We are united with Christ, and we are united with Christ for eternity. We are completely and forever changed at the hand of Almighty God, and that hand never releases his grip on you. It never lets you go. This is wonderful news if you are a wanderer by nature. Christ's pursuit of those who are his is relentless. And having said that, Jesus still says it for a reason. 
He's very profound in saying it. He is highlighting to the disciples the importance of the Christian maintaining a pursuit of Christ in order to avoid the world influencing us rather than us influencing the world, which is a very real thing that happens. The very real thing that happens is the very reason why our knee-jerk reaction is to separate ourselves completely from the world, right? Well, my neighbors don't know the Lord, so I don't need a relationship with those guys because they might influence me rather than me influence them. Christ says, no, don't operate like that. Draw near to me and be strengthened and then go influence them. Go influence our lost neighbors. Go influence the world for Christ. He's also reminding them that in order to be the salt of the earth and have a preserving effect on those around us with the message of the gospel, we must remain undefiled from the world. And we'll talk a little bit more in a little bit about how we, how we are to do that because there is some application here. Moving on through the scripture, verses 14 through 16, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, after telling them they are the salt of the earth, he comes back and he tells them that they are the light of the world. He tells them that in light of what we see in Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, God promises his people there that the light of his glory in Israel would attract all nations. Look at that with me. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then in John 8, Jesus comes and he announces himself as the light that God promised. Look at John 8, verse 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if that is true, why is Jesus sitting here in front of the disciples telling them that they are the light of the world? I think there's a couple of reasons for this. The first one is a, a, a truth that we must, we must hold to as a Christian. We must know. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, Paul says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, if we have been called by Christ, if you belong to Christ, Christ lives within you. So the light that is Christ now resides with you. So now in that, that is the vein in which Jesus is telling them, hey, you are the light of the world. Therefore, that light is in us. It is changing us. It is sanctifying us. And by God's grace, it's shining through us. And it's illuminating darkness. Now, that doesn't make disciples the light. It doesn't make us the light, but it makes us carriers of the light. It's like spinning a corner into a dark room holding a flashlight. The flashlight is the agent of change. You just happen to have it in your hand. And that, that's not to discourage you. That's not to, to anti-snowflake. You know, of course, says the snowflake thing all the time. It's not to come to the other side of that argument. It's simply to encourage you and remind you, you are not responsible for any of it. You are a carrier of that which is responsible. And the Bible tells us he is faithful to finish what he has started. <laughs> Drives out all fear. Right? If I'm responsible for saving you, then you guys are in a lot of trouble. You guys are in a lot of trouble, but God says, no, I will put my light inside of you, and it is in that that you'll illuminate the darkness. You carry flashlights into dark rooms to illuminate them. The flashlight is the most important part of the equation. The second thing Jesus is saying here is he is expressing the importance of the call of Christ. So what Jesus knew here, what they didn't know at the time, 
was that he would not always be with them physically. He would not always be there to do the work that he had been doing among them and drawing the crowds and the things that had been going on up to this point. Jesus is going to use them by the power of the Holy Spirit to carry the light of Christ into the world to illuminate darkness. Now what I really like is what Paul says in Ephesians 5 where he says light doesn't only illuminate darkness, it exposes darkness. Right? So here's Jesus saying, you are the light of the world, and we think, great, we're going to make this huge impact. All these people, they know they're running around in darkness, so we can shine our light in there and save them. No, what Paul tells us, what, he, what Paul expounds on here is to remind us that often those who are walking in darkness don't even know that they're in darkness. They don't know they're in darkness. They are helpless. They are defeated. They are help, in a helpless state, and it is through the believer that Christ is inhabited that we will carry the message of the gospel to even show them that the darkness is surrounding them. They don't even know. More often than not, we, we forget that peace. We forget that that is the responsibility that's been given to us. The gospel, the light of the gospel shows darkness to be what it is. Have you guys seen around the holiday time, around Christmas, I guess, on Facebook, there were these videos floating around of these guys that had been colorblind their whole life, but their family like scraped up pennies and bought them these, these colorblind glasses that allowed them to see color for the first time. Like, those are incredible videos. I have a, uh, I've called him, he's been my grandpa since I was two, but I guess he's technically my step-grandpa, but um, he's a colorblind guy. And I remember thinking, I remember talking to him over the years, and he would explain to me, like, yeah, this, you know, you see this color, but this, and I think about how revolutionary it would be for him if he were able to put one of those on. The guy's in his 90s. He's never seen color in his life to put those on and then see, see color. I feel like that's the effect that the gospel has on the life of those who've never tasted its goodness. For those who are wandering in darkness and don't know, when you give them light, they go, wow, <laughs> I did. I know a lot of you have that same experience. When you, when you ran to the feet of Christ and you laid your burdens upon him and you put him at the feet of the cross, immediately the effect is like, man, the gospel is the greatest thing we've ever tasted. It's the greatest thing we've ever seen. All other pleasures pale in comparison to the pleasure the believer finds in Christ. And that's why this is so important that we would carry that light that God has been so gracious to place within us. We carry it out. We would expose darkness. We would illuminate darkness that we know is there. And this is why Jesus implores them not to hide it, not to put their lamp under a basket, put it on a stand so that it might maximize its reach Teach your kids the song, don't hide it under a bushel, or let the devil blow it out, right? That's what they tell us. We put our light on a lamp, or we put our light on a stand, we let it shine, that it might expose darkness to those who do not see it, and then it may illuminate the path of those who believe. So the call to be salt and light is an important one, but it's also important for us to remember that it wasn't just given to the disciples. Jesus gave it, and he meant it to be a call that permeated through generation after generation of the church, and that that call that permeates through generation through generation of the church is to the glory of God. It's so that God's glory might be increased to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say let your light shine before others so that you might be lauded as a hero that has this light. That's not what we do. We shine our light to the glory of God, and he's faithful to continue to extend his glory through us. That's his, it's the way that it works. And he advances his glory to the ends of the earth until the day that he decides to, to bring an end to all of this. So how do we do this? I think there's a very dangerous spot that you can get into in sermons like this. Because what I can do is tell you all this and then you can run out of here and build your salt and light checklist, right? Like what are the things I need to begin doing? You go on uh, version and find a salt and light Bible reading plan. 
And you read that, and you're like, okay, if I do these things, I'll become more salty. But I want to make sure that I hammer home this point. While there is, we do have responsibility in this, we do not become salt and light in the way Jesus has called us to be salt and light by trying harder or building checklists, or working with our hands, or busying ourselves, but we become salt and light by trusting in the all-sufficient grace of God to satisfy and sanctify us. And that's why the context of the scripture is so important. We talked about it earlier. I'm going to go back and read you verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for the reward, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Therefore, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Like Jesus does this for a reason. He says, blessed are those who suffer all kinds of evil on behalf of Christ. Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For here it is, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw and I had and now hear that I still have. Listen, Jesus says this in this context because it is in the context of suffering that we become the most preserving salt and the brightest light. If we can remain to be the remain, if we can remain salt and light in the midst of suffering and trial, then we are the most impactful in those moments. But oftentimes we go the opposite, right? Suffering and trial bring isolation, they bring confusion. And at that point in time, we start to question God and say, Why am I here? Like, why am I continuing to go through these things? God, Jesus says, when you suffer in my name, why have I sacrificed and given my life over to you for you to allow me to be persecuted in your name? Jesus says, it is because it brings glory to the Father who is in heaven. And at the end of the day, that's why we do everything that we do, to bring glory to God. So here's the thing. This means our suffering is not meaningless. There's hope in that. It means it's not meaningless. It means it's meant for greater purpose. So our suffering should not stop good works. Rather, our suffering becomes the conduit by which we shine the light of Christ and glorify our Father in heaven. Our suffering becomes the conduit by which we offer another way to those who suffer alone in darkness. You are the light of the world to those who are suffering in darkness. If we live our lives as though suffering is not part of it, they begin to think that there is not a right way to suffer. And Christ says there is a right way to suffer. We suffer to the glory of God. We suffer to the glory of God. We give it meaning. We hand it over to the almighty king of the world who spoke all things into existence, including your current suffering and trial, because it is to his glory. So if you're here today and you know Christ and you're suffering and you're discouraged with your saltlessness, maybe you're discouraged with your darkness, remember that here Jesus declares you to be salt and light in the midst of your suffering. You didn't declare that for yourself. You didn't declare it for yourself at the beginning. You don't declare it for yourself now. You can't declare it for yourself. Christ has declared it for you. Therefore, you are salt and light by his power regardless of your circumstances. 
You're salt and light by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how we'll obey the charge. We won't do it by our own power. And like I said before, this is not something that can be done in isolation. I can talk to you about isolation because I have a PhD in isolation. Like it is, my natural wiring is to be alone. I'm a creature of oneness. Oneness, I have a family full of people that live in my house with me, but I'm a creature of oneness. But we cannot, we can't put these practice, we can't put these things into practice in isolation. If I sat down to cure some meat, to preserve some meat with salt, and I poured a bowl full of salt, and I laid a slab of meat five feet from it on the counter, that meat is not going to be preserved because it was in the vicinity of the salt. That salt has to be scattered among the meat. That salt has to be massaged into the meat, and it's in that that it can perform the preserving function. Salt doesn't need preservation. We've already talked about it's a stable compound. Salt doesn't need to be preserved, but meat does therefore they must be combined in the same way if we are to be the salt of the earth the church must be out among the people of the world the church must be out among those who don't know christ we must be out among the lost doing the work of preservation in the name of christ by the power of the holy spirit we must put emphasis on inviting the lost into our homes into our home groups into our gatherings we stamp so hard for community because this is where we play that out we step and we, we invite them into what we're doing. We go out into the world. We cannot afford to focus our energy only on relationships with believers. We must have them, right? We know that they're important, but we can't focus all of our energy on that. We must have relationships with those who don't know Christ. We must be willing to have, like I said, in our homes, have lost folks in our home groups, have lost folks in our gathering, even though oftentimes it will change the dynamic of what we're doing. You ever had a home group that was a really good Bible study and your lost neighbors came? And you're like, turn with me to the book of Job. I'm like, whoa, that doesn't go very well. Sometimes we have to be willing to change course because these, God has presented these opportunities for us, but we can't run from them. We can't run from them because God has created us for this. We've been given the charge that we are to do this as part of what we do. We have to know and engage our neighbors in whatever neighborhood God has planted you. That's a, that's a truth that we often skip over, but I like to dwell on it. We all live somewhere, and we live somewhere intentionally because God has put us there. He planted us like a seed. And you know, no matter what neighborhood you live in, I promise you there are lots of people that need to know the Lord in that neighborhood, and God has planted you there. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty incredible if you think about it. We have to know and engage that and not allow ourselves to just be alone on the corner protecting ourselves from the sin that's outside of our home. We must be engaging that and spreading salt and massaging it into that. But in the same way, and almost in the inverse, light shines brighter when it's unified with other lights. This is what the church is about, right? It's why community is important. Talked about it just a little while ago. It's why we need one another in these moments to help illuminate. When lights are combined, more darkness is exposed. And when lights are combined, more darkness is driven out. I, uh, my wife and I recently, November-ish, bought a house in Huffman, USA. And uh, it's not whole, all right? But it'll do. It'll do for now. Um, and the place that we bought um, needed an extensive renovation. We walked in. Morgan Marley was our realtor. And we walked in back in June, the first time I saw it. And I opened the door. Leah went in first. And I walked in. I was in that house for 15 seconds. And I took my sunglasses off. And I said, no way. And I turned around and walked back outside. This is so much work. I don't want to do this. But my wife won. So we, we bought the place after, uh, after six months of wrestling with the bear. And uh, Leah took over. She became the design queen. My house looks like Joanna Gaines walked in and threw up on it. It's everywhere. I remember she took me over there one night, and the walls were red in there, and she, painted, she had painted like 15 different paint colors on the wall. 
She was like, I want you to come in and, and choose a paint color. And I walked in, I said, Leah, that's all the same color. It was 15 different shades of white that apparently were gray, and I was supposed to choose one of them. And I didn't. I said, you choose. So we ended up with gray walls that aren't really gray. They're actually something called eider white, but they're gray, apparently. Um, they look the exact same as the trim that's not eider white. It's extra white. There's this, <laughs> we've been going through a lot here, you know. And, and um, when it came to the house, I told Leah, I said, I don't really care. I want somewhere to sleep. I want you to let me do one thing on the outside of this house, just one. If you know me at all, you know I'm not a woods guy. I'm not an outdoors guy. I'm scared of things that live outdoors. And I'm not good with animals and, and this, that, and the other. Um, but there are what I would call, I call it a forest behind my house. It's really about a 30-foot track of, you know, easement. But anyway, and I told her, I said, you can do whatever you want to the inside of the house. But the one thing that I want to do is put lights. I've got to get all these lights working outside. It was like a gazebo out there with spotlights on it. At one point in time, apparently that whole back area was lit up. Right now what I have is a ceiling fan on the back porch that puts out about a 10-foot radius of light. And that's all I can do when I go outside. I have to stay in the light. I don't go into the darkness because we don't know what is there. And after, the, you know, after all the interior is done, the renovation budget begins to shrink. And the one thing I don't have are my lights. I don't have them. And we had a really hard conversation two weeks ago where I told her, I'm getting these lights, whether you're okay with it or not. I'm going to get this done on my own. And the reason being is a single light in my backyard doesn't light up nearly enough for it to be functional for me. Because there's snakes out there. I dug one out of the pool in the winter and killed it already in the winter. It's 30 degrees swimming in the pool. There's snakes out there. There's wolves. Who knows what's out there in those woods, right? <laughs> And I need these lights. And I don't need one. I need a bunch because the more spotlights I put in, the more electricity I run, the further I run them into the backyard, the more that area that scares me to death is illuminated and I can actually use it. Right? You see what I'm saying? The church operates like this too. A singular light on your back porch only gives, only gives light to, into so much darkness. It only exposes so much darkness. But when we are unified, when we are together, when we are gathering, we're spending time together, when we are doing those things, we become an even brighter light into that darkness. We're exposing more darkness. We're illuminating more paths. We're strengthening those that are around us. We are spreading the glory of God into the people of the world. That's why we must be out among the lost. But understand that it's equally important that we're anchored to each other for, for accountability that we're anchored to each other for encouragement, that we're anchored to each other for focus on the word of God, right? Equally important. All these things are equally important. This is why Jesus tells the disciples they must be both salt and light because we are a people meant to be both gathered and scattered. Gathered and scattered. That's why we call this not service but gathering. It's an opportunity for us to gather when we leave here, we will then scatter into the world to do the work of salt. But here we're being encouraged and combining our lights so that they might shine brighter. We are gathered so that our lights may be combined in order to foster greater illumination. And then we are scattered so that our salt may do the work of preserving our communities before the rot of death destroys them through the consequence of sin. Now that is a, that is a tough statement, but that is the reality. We have family members that are in that state. We have neighbors. We have uh, friends, we have coworkers, we're around them every day. And my challenge to you today, my challenge to myself, as I walk back out into that world, am I doing the work of salt and light to the glory of God, or am I just kind of hanging out and I'm going to be salt when I get back with you guys? I'm just hanging out and I'm going to be light when I get back with you guys. Like, what am I going to do today? How am I going to to do that which Christ has enabled me to do? This is a great responsibility. It's a major call. It's a great responsibility. And here's the thing. It's so freeing. What I just said was I'm going to have to go out and decide if I'm going to do these things. 
here's the thing. God knew I couldn't do these things. He knew you couldn't do these things. So he gave us someone that would do them for us. He empowered us with something that would do them for us. And, and he, he knew we couldn't do it alone. A, a, just a short time after Jesus delivers this charge to the disciples, he would go away and he would give his life. And by doing so, he would provide the power that they would need to be the salt and light that he has called them to be. This is the gospel that we speak of. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that we gather and we talk about together and we are encouraged by and reminded of that gives us power to continue to move forward. And then we are scattered to spread. This is the gospel that God looked at our helpless state and said, there's nothing he can do. And he sent his son to do it for me. He sent his son to do it for you. We cannot please the heart of God on our own. We cannot work our way into sinlessness. We cannot make ourselves become something that would be pleasing to God. But by the blood of Christ that we are covered with, when he looks upon us, he doesn't see us. He sees Christ. And he's pleased. And when we are changed by that, as we said earlier, we are eternally united with Christ. And nothing will take that away from us. That is the message that we take out into the world. That is what preserves, that is what illuminates, that's what exposes darkness. If you're here today, this morning, my my hope for you, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't understand what it is that we're speaking about, I I wanna encourage you um, to consider the fact that what I just said about the way Jesus died for me and died for many in this room, he did the same for you. Like he died for you in the same way. I pray that if any are here today that don't know the Lord, that they would not leave without answering the call of Christ today. And tasting that goodness of God that we talked about earlier and understanding that that, that is something that, that the Lord has uniquely created and given to us that we might not hold and keep to ourselves, but we might be out in the world doing the work of Christ to the glory of God. Let me pray for you and, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and for your charge and call that we heard this morning. God, I pray that while we would take the call to be salt and light seriously, that you would, you would give us an incredible sense of dependency upon you to be able to do that. God, you as our strength, you as our power, you as the one who goes before us and prepares the way, God, and sets the table that we might go in and do that which you've called us to do. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness. God, I'm thankful for this church, for each and every person that's here today, that's represented here. Father, I pray that those that don't know you would, would come to know you today. Father, I pray that those of us who, who do know you, God, that we'd be strengthened and encouraged through the word that we've read today, through the, the content that we've looked at. I thank you for, for being here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.